the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is God's Word. Dear Father, um, God, we're just, uh, we're very, very grateful again to be here. Um, I'm very grateful again for this opportunity. I just pray uh, that you know, I would decrease so that you would increase, that your word would be speaking abundantly through me. God, uh, our hope, our expectation, so much of our faith is built around this idea of everlasting life. So I pray that we would walk away from this sermon with a deeper and richer understanding and appreciation for what it is, and uh, you know, just trusting more in Jesus for the, the gift that he has given us through that. In your name I pray. Amen. All right. Okay, so um, when we start, I would like you guys to imagine just for a, a brief moment that, uh, that I was actually not a preacher, that, that I'm not preaching to you guys up here. I'm actually a salesman, you know. I want you guys to think about that for a moment. And uh, instead, of, instead of preaching to you guys about, about spiritual things, I'm going to reach in my pocket and I'm going to pull out this, uh, this bottle and it's going to have like a few little like capsules in it. And I'm going to say that uh, the, these, these pills will, will essentially change your life. You take this pill one time, one time, not, not once a day, not, not, every, not every, other, every other week. You take this pill one time and your body will literally be immune to any form of cancer that, that exists. And, and, and more than that, it, it'll keep you from, from suffering any kind of liver disease, any kind of kidney disease, any kind of heart disease. No, you will find that no disease can out, even slightly affect your body once you take one of these pills. But wait, but wait, I know, there's more. Let's imagine that you're in a horrible, horrible car accident. Car swerves off the highway, rolls down a hill, hit by a plane. I don't know. Anything could happen. You will walk away from that incident with some scorched clothes and nothing else. You won't have a bruise. You won't have a missing eyelash. You won't have one of those uncomfortable little hangnails. Nothing. You will be completely fine. Would you take that pill? If we're Christians, like, the answer is kind of like, I mean, we're kind of looking to the dying so we can get to the next part. So if we're Christians, there's, like, some reasonable hesitation there. But we would assume, like, if, if this was a real thing, and it's not, in case you weren't, weren't, weren't sure. And if this was a real thing, and I was bringing to the world this amazing discovery of never-ending life, the life that we have here, but nevertheless, never-ending life, it would be like revolutionary isn't, isn't even a big enough word for it. This would be the greatest discovery in the history of humankind. Like, like 
think of how news outlets and media, like there'd be riots in the streets. Things would be absolutely crazy for this one little pill that cures us of all our physical ailments. And so we might think to the, like, to the non-religious worlds, to the, to the people who aren't Christians and just kind of like doing their thing, that they would maybe be all about this, right? I mean, why not? Like how many of our lives have been marked by not just our own physical problems, but witnessing the physical suffering of other people, that's a, that's a big thing. That's a hard thing. Seems like pretty reasonable. But I think even after some like deeper consideration from even our, our, our non-religious friends, they would, they would start to think, yeah, maybe, maybe this really isn't the best thing for me because I, I don't know if I explained, like there's no side effects, but there's also no going back. Once you take the pill, you're stuck. And so we think of the ways that, that life has kind of been difficult to us that wasn't physical, right? Like I imagine trying to sell this pill to, I don't know, a dude who just went through a really, really terrible divorce, right? Would, would everlasting life really be that appealing to this guy who had just experienced so much pain and so much emotional difficulty, all this conflict with, with someone that he, that he loved or used to love, I don't know. Or, or imagine uh, like maybe selling this to a teenager who had a very like abusive or, or just, just harmful, toxic relationship with their parents. Would, would they want life eternally? Would they want this essentially to go on forever? I think, I think we can recognize some of the areas in our lives that, that might make this pill, even in a completely non-religious vacuum setting, still not that appealing. We think of all the, the heartbreak, the, uh, the struggling relationships, romantic or non-romantic, the, the dreams that we, that we chased and that flopped, the, the goals that we never quite met, or just the crippling realization of all of our own flaws that year after year don't really seem to be getting better. All of a sudden, the, the, the idea of this pill, the optimism of it starts to fade a little bit. And so... Would this be enough for somebody to just say, like, I am ready, despite the mix of, of the good things and the beautiful things? Because, listen, I don't want to paint life as this, uh, you know, just this awful, terrible thing that's consistently bad. Like, life is not the sum of perpetual bummers. I, I do believe that. I do believe that life is full of, of beautiful things, of, of enjoying things of, of love and of success and of satisfaction and contentment. But the thing is, life is such a mixture of both the good and the bad. The question is, is the good good enough to sign a binding contract of immortality? See, for Christians, the concept of everlasting life is not a foreign concept. It's not. It's, it's very familiar to us. Our, our very faith is built upon it. For, for many people, if they only know one Bible verse, it's probably John 3.16, which for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Exactly. And so we all know that everlasting life is like this super cool paradise that's waiting for us on the other side. But 
I think that even, even as we paint it in that way, there's still a lot of us who would struggle to define what everlasting life is. And they might even just define everlasting life as just life that goes on forever, which to me, again, that doesn't seem that enjoyable. Like, life is full of struggle. Do I want to struggle for the rest of forever? I don't think I do. If we look at some, like, old-timey, like, American hymns, they always talk about, like, streets paved with gold, and everyone gets their own mansion. So is heaven or everlasting life just, uh, like, a super cool life where I just get more things that I want here? Like, I don't know, when I, when I first started going to church, I was told that everlasting life meant worshiping God forever, which for me sounded awful because you had to stand and you had to sing. And I didn't want to do that forever. I didn't want to do it for the half hour that my church was already doing it. And so like we, we all kind of carry these weird different views of what everlasting life is. And it's so pivotal to what we believe as Christians that I think it's worth a, a pretty solid dive here. And so, and so my goal tonight is to break down this idea of what, what, what is this, first of all, and, uh, and how, how are we going to be encouraged by it moving forward. So I have three points. Our first one is as follows. Oh, nice. Super good. All right. Eternal life is true life eternally. That's our first point. Eternal life is true life eternally. See, my response to the kind of little monologue I did, I did just a moment ago about this idea of never-ending life is that if we're identifying everlasting life as just life that just energizer bunnies forever and ever and ever, then we're selling this idea of life as we know it. Life as all of the things that we have come to see it as just stretched out indefinitely. And the thing is, the life that we are promised in this, this, this package of everlasting life is not the life that we are familiar with. It is, it is detrimental. Like we, it, is, it is essential for us to understand that the life that Jesus is promising us in everlasting life is not the life that we know. And, you know, that, that could lead to us conjuring up images of uh, pizza trees in heaven and fountains of your favorite craft beer. But I, I don't want to necessarily go that far. Jesus doesn't give us an exact blueprint of what we can expect in everlasting life. But he does show us through his ministry and through what he was doing here on earth exactly kind of, kind of what this true life, this real life was intended to be and then what we can anticipate. See, we, we look at what Jesus did. And of course, the, the climax of what Jesus did um, in his ministry was, was his death through which we have found life. But if we look more, even to like the day-to-day stuff, we see Jesus' interactions with the world as a way of showing and reflecting what true life was intended to be. Where the world was judgmental and scornful and hateful and wrathful, as we saw often through the Pharisees, Jesus was offering forgiveness. Jesus was offering love. Jesus was offering grace. 
where the world was, was full of diseases, Jesus was offering healing and restoration to these people. Where, where the world had taken these people who had these diseases and were, and were homeless or, or lepers or, or a, a thousand other things that the world decided was, was not worth touching, was unclean, Jesus was embracing these people and treating them like, like the human beings, like the, like the people made in the image of God that they truly were. And so by Jesus kind of uprooting the sin that had, that had um, happened and not just, you know, simple interactions and relationships, but on a large scale, Jesus was showing us and still does show us what true life is intended to be. That life, life is not meant to have these social outcasts who are thrown off into the darkness. That life is not meant to brutalize and, and, and completely scorn and scold people for their sins, but they're meant to be, to be restored and to be given grace and to be given second chances and the opportunity of repentance. That's what Jesus is doing for us. Um, in, in a sense, humanity was like this, this boat that had been misguided by a broken compass and was sailing over these, these raging waters, these vicious waves that were just tearing it apart. And Jesus, as this like super skilled like naval captain, was redirecting the, the, the vessel back into a route that would lead it, not just, to its, not just to its destination, but along safer waters, the waters that that boat was originally built for to begin with. And so we can, as we trust in Jesus and see him in his mission on earth, we can see that this was the life that, this was the way, I'm sorry, that life was truly intended to be. Um, our second point is... Also, probably something that you were asking yourself as, as I was talking was you, you guys were, you know, uh, John, you were talking about things that we're doing now, things that we can do now. We're talking about everlasting life, aren't we? Well, here's, here's a big misconception that we need to really understand as best as we can, which is that everlasting life is not something that we're waiting for. Everlasting life is not something that we're waiting for. If we look at John chapter 3, verse 36, the same chapter where Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus and talking about everlasting life through believing in him, Jesus also says that anyone who believes in God's son has everlasting life. It's not will have. It's not is going to have. It's not when he dies will wake up everlastingly. No, Whoever believes in God's son has it. You, you believe it's there. It's just like that. The everlasting life that we have now is a glimpse of the everlasting life that we will have in the future. But they're not disconnected. It's, it's like a tiny little stream that's going to lead into like the ocean. And so I like, uh, I like this picture of, of brownie batter. It reminds me of uh, when, you know, maybe let's say uh, this, this happened with when my mom would be making brownies in the kitchen for an occasion or something like that. She would sometimes like, you know, the traditional like, oh, John, you can come and lick the spoon, right? So like she gave me the spoon that's got like, you know, this much little brownie batter on it. And I'm just like seven years old, just having the time of my life. And the promise was I could have a taste of the, of the brownie batter, of the brownie mix now, and then when the brownies came out, I could have an actual brownie. 
It's kind of the same thing. Like we are, we are given a glimpse of this everlasting life today, and then soon we will have it in its fullness. Because that it should be necessary to recognize that we're not experiencing the fullness of it now. Like you, you guys might even be thinking, but John, you just mentioned how Jesus uh, speaks to all of the things that life shouldn't be and is healing them. If, if we are inheriting, if we are experiencing everlasting life, John, then why are we still suffering so much? Then why, then why are Christians still experiencing the same diseases that other people are? That, that, doesn't, seem, that doesn't seem to make any sense. And the only way I can really answer that is, is by turning us to this, this point that, that a lot of us have identified as already but not yet. You know, already but not yet. That we are already saved, but we're not as saved as we're going to be. That, that we're already purified, but we're not yet purified to the fullest extent that we will be. That, that the kingdom of heaven has come to us in a glimpse, but will soon be revealed in its full picture. And so even when we look at suffering, even when we look at difficulty that we as Christians experience, and I, I, I won't say can experience because we will experience it. That's what Jesus promised us. If we look at suffering, we know that suffering as a whole has not just evaporated from our lives and gone away. But we do know that suffering has a, a significance to it, a purpose to it. We have numerous places throughout Scripture which talk about the purpose that suffering brings, the, the virtues and the goodness that suffering brings in us. And I would say most essentially, as we suffer, we are sharing experiences with our Savior. Because Jesus did not, I mean, we, we, we know this. We know that Jesus did not live this life of, of luxury and just, you know, chilling, you know, eating bonbons all day. We know that. So then when we suffer, we should not think this is some kind of an anomaly. We should think I'm experiencing the same thing that Jesus experienced. This is what I was called to. And so the, the suffering that we experience now gives us fellowship with our Savior who suffered greatly and there's purpose to it. It's not senseless. It's not mindless suffering that has no reason. It does. And so there's a redemption there. And so with this new life, now we can come to the understanding that everlasting life really isn't just a, a, a post-funeral, right? Everlasting life is now something that we're experiencing already. Maybe we didn't even know that until today, but it's, it's there. We're experiencing everlasting life if we are believing in the Son of God. And so if we take this point truly, it means that now we have the privilege and the responsibility and the ability in general to carry on the, the mission that Jesus first had. So as we, as we look back on our last point, which showed that Jesus was 
uh, showing true life as he was blessing those who were neglected, showing true life as he was giving forgiveness to those who were, who were torn up in judgment, showing true life as he was just, just living this life of benevolence, this life of serving everyone else, of always being the bottom and letting everyone else kind of, you know, use him as a doormat in, in a sense. Like that is the same kind of mission that we are enabled to do and the same kind of responsibility that we have that we are forwarding the gospel, the good news of Jesus in our lives, just as Jesus did in his. I think of like, you know, trying to bring this a little bit closer to earth so we can, we can grasp it in a practical sense. Imagine you have like a very um, competitive work environment, like be almost beyond competitive. Like it's like cutthroat, Right. Like there's, there's, there's constant gossiping. There's constant, um, I'm speaking ill of other people and there's like backstabbing and it's, and it's you know, it's, it's very fast, rigorous work field. And you as a Christian are now there with the same life that Jesus had. You, it, it stands to question, it, it does make you wonder that if that Christian is just kind of jumping into the current of that culture with no sense of resistance, with no sense of, I'm not going to do this same stuff. Like, is that person really living this life of Jesus in a culture that is so clearly opposed to Jesus, right? So you think, okay, I'm in this competitive environment. Well, how, how, how do I show that this this job is not everything for me because it's not because I don't need this job. This, this job is not my, my well-being and my sanity and my mental health. I can live without this job because I do have Jesus and Jesus offers me full contentment. So if we are believing in the things that the gospel tells us, then how does that affect being in environments that are very marked by sin? I also think of, uh, of my, my family, I'll get more into family stuff later. This was definitely a good sermon for both my parents to miss, so I'll talk about some stuff. Um, but my mom's family, I love my mom. My mom is probably, I love my mom probably more than anybody else in the world. But my mom's family, the way that they like deal with conflict is just so bad. They, they, will, they will have arguments with each other and they will get into conflicts and they will hurt each other's feelings and then they will stop talking to each other for years at a time. Like, it blows my mind because the opposite is my dad's family where they're arguing constantly, but then they'll see each other for Thanksgiving and they'll argue again there and they'll tell each other they love each other and then, you know, have split a pot of gumbo and then go back home as if nothing really happened. But my mom's family, they, they'll, they'll, you'll just say the wrong thing or you'll do the wrong thing and then you just get your phone call screened for like six months. And I just, it's, it's mind-blowing to me. And so I think... If, if I'm a part of this family and I have relationships with my mom and with my aunts and some of my uncles, then how do I deal with conflict? How do I deal with conflict in the way that, that my, the, the everlasting life, this Jesus life kind of, kind of preaches to? Do I just kind of conform to it because it's the common thing to do? 
Or do I say, hey, um, I know you're probably screening my calls because I, you know, only sent, because uh, I, I didn't mention your, your wife in the Christmas card. That's not real. I'm just making stuff up. But potential conflict, I guess. Like, I know, I know you're upset, but I just want you to know that I, I do love you, and I'm sorry that you're not talking to me, and I'm going to continue to try and call because our relationship is important to me. Like, that would be a way to resist the, the sinful things that exist with, with the Jesus life that we're supposed to be living. And so that should lead us to our, our third point, our, our second to last point, which is that our eternal life is something that we should be investing in. Or at the very least, our eternal life is something that we should be working on. See, here's the thing. The reason I mention like the culture of a work environment that's super, super toxic and competitive and uh, you know gossipy, the reason I mention the culture of, of my mom's family, which is very uh, you know not not talking, like very just like distance and breaking off relationships at, at the slightest hint of disrespect. The reason I bring that up is because. When we aren't intentionally trying to transplant the gospel into the way that we do things, what will almost instantly happen is we will default to the culture of of something completely different. If we aren't applying the gospel intentionally and consistently to the way that we're living our lives, then we're going to default to the culture of the world instead. The world around us, for example, I mean, we, we, we know, we, I'm sure 75% of us here could write a full, full paper of, of the difference in values and goals for, that the world possesses compared to what Jesus is, is commanding us to and is, and is inspiring us to and enabling us to. We know that the world uh, uh, doesn't, doesn't value sacrifice. We know that the world values um, financial security. We know that the world uh, um, emphasizes um, consistency and, uh, and, and structure and security. Security is the word that I'm looking for. We know that the world emphasizes... Jeez, I'm sorry. Comfort, maybe. Maybe money. And so what I see around me, but mostly often what I see in myself is I see that when I'm not intentionally trying to do something that, that would imitate Jesus, that, that kind of flows from that well of what, I'm, of what I'm trying to do to honor God and to honor the gospel, what I end up de- defaulting to is just living for my own security and living for my own comfort, and living for my own finances, and, and all of these things, because that's just the common denominator around us. That's just what's naturally going to happen if we aren't automatically resisting that. I'll, uh, I'll, get, I'll get deeper into some family stuff for you guys. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll actually highlight a, uh, a specific way that I that I have failed in this and something that God actually brought to me as I was preparing this sermon. Um, I, uh, so when I, when I first started going back to school for, uh, for seminary training, I, I was too broke to, uh, to afford rent. And so my dad invited me to move in with him, which was, you know, a fairly positive thing. 
I, uh, I don't have a phenomenal relationship with my dad, but we do love each other. We are very cordial with each other. It's, I wouldn't say it's hostile. The problem is that my dad and I, like there, there is a lot of history of my dad's moral failings really negatively impacting my family as a whole. And I realize that the closer that I get to my dad, the more I start to see those types of moral failings, like really driving a rift between us. It really just, just upsets me and frustrates me and kind of fills me with this like indignation. And so I got to this point where I realized I can't just leave this here. I, I have to talk or my relationship with my dad is just going to wither up. But here's the thing. I really didn't want to do that. And so here's what I did instead. I decided, well, the closer I get to my dad, the more these types of problems come up. Therefore, see you later, dad. And so I'm spending all my time separated from him. And I'm very passively, like, I'm not trying to make it look like I'm avoiding him, but I'm definitely kind of like ducking, you know, see his car roll up, turn off the lights, you know, 100%, 100% things that I was doing to, to a completely avoid this type of situation. Because what I realized was if I wasn't adapting this mentality that said that relationships, especially relationships that have been wounded by some kind of problem, Jesus would say, you have to repair that. You have to resolve that. You're a Christian with, with a big conflict with someone who's probably not a Christian. You should be honest. You should be transparent. You should tell them that you love them, but you should tell them what the problem is. But I wasn't applying the gospel to that part of my life. I was applying this concept that my dad's negative. I don't need negativity. Therefore, Heisman, I'm not going to deal with this right now. And it was a very self-centered, like, I mean, honestly, I'm not trying to be unhappy. I'm not trying to get in a bad mood all the time, which is only going to happen if I talk to my dad about this stuff. So I ignored it. And then two weeks ago, I moved out of my house. And as I was like about to get in the truck to drive away, my dad pulls in and I'm thinking this will be like a very like just simple conversation. Like I'll see you in a couple weeks, we'll grab lunch or something. And like, it just like really hit me. Like I'm saying goodbye and like I'm moving 20 minutes away. I'm moving from Pantano to Alvernon. We're not, there's no, I don't have to get on a plane to go to the east side. But at the same time, I had this privilege I had this opportunity to spend more time with my dad. And I had the opportunity to tell him things that most people in our family, in fact, I would say nobody else in our family is actually willing to talk to him about. And instead of utilizing that as a way to honor him as a person, to honor our relationship, and most importantly, to honor Jesus who was calling me to repair this relationship, I just ducked it, and I still got to do this. This was, not, this was not some, like, sin of my younger years. This was, like, two weeks ago. This was two weeks ago. So if you think the guy standing up here is better, he's not. But it's important for us to remember this. 
And I'll tell you another thing, and this is to really try to make this as practical as possible. I try not to get super practical in sermons because I feel like at the end of the day, we should be able to, to take a, a word and, and kind of apply it in certain areas. But I'm going to get really just like straight down to, to, to the middle of, of what I think was going on. At the end of the day, like why, why was I so motivated to act this way towards my dad? Like, why was it so easy for me to not view him in, in the light of the gospel and not view our relationship in the light of the gospel? I have a very simple answer for you. I wasn't reading my Bible. I wasn't. How can I expect to do the things that Jesus is calling me to do in my life, in the everlasting life that he has given me if I am not consistently reminding myself of the narrative that I am living in, living under the, the, the control and command and love of God, if I'm not reminding myself of that, if I'm not building myself up in that truth, then all I'm hearing is everything from every other angle and most of it's wrong. Because it's very easy to hear the gospel of the world telling me, John, you know, you don't have to deal with this if you don't want to. Relationships are, I mean, the, the idea that you should have to be bound to your family is ridiculous anyways. You should just do what's best for you and, and not let someone else's negativity drag you down. But that's not the gospel. That's not our gospel. That's not the gospel of Jesus. It's not the gospel of our God, of our Father. It's not. And I'm still learning that. I mean, we have, uh, we have runners here. We have runners in our, in our church. Uh, I'm not a runner myself, but I've dabbled in 5Ks, you know. I know enough to know that uh, if you are trying to work towards a, a personal record, a PR, as they call it at times, that, that you have to stick to a regimen of consistency, that you have to hold yourself to a place of discipline. You can't, you can't take uh, uh, six months off of, of running and devote yourself to a diet of breakfast burritos and chocolate cake and then beat your half marathon record. Kent, can you confirm this for me? It's confirmed. It's confirmed by a professional. And so if we can apply this same concept, this same elementary concept to our own lives, we are all, I think, I, think, I don't think anyone here who, who would call themselves a Christian would not say that they are trying to be obedient to Jesus, that they are trying to do the things that Jesus is calling them to do. But how can we expect to accurately perform and, and do the things that Jesus wants us to do if we don't apply any semblance of discipline, of consistency, of regimen to our own daily lives? That's the place that I found myself in. I thought, I'm just, I'll naturally do what's godly in this relationship because why wouldn't I? Well, there's a very easy reason why I wouldn't. Because I was trying to lift, you know, a big old dumbbell here. And my spiritual muscles had not been doing push-ups in a long time. If we're not developing ourselves in that way, if we're not taking our spiritual life. Because here's the thing. There are people, I mean, and... and this is everyone, and, this, and like I said, this is heavily, heavily, myself included. There are people here who take their financial well-being very, very seriously. Talking budgets, 
talking, you know, going through uh, bank statements regularly. And that stuff is great. It's not bad. There are people who are counting calories and uh, only eating celery, which is the perfect food because it takes more calories to digest. It it's, it's just, it's the perfect food. Celery is great. But people who are only eating celery, who are working out six to seven times a week, who are holding themselves to consistent measures of discipline. We have people who are, are going to therapy and prioritizing their mental health and, and practicing self, positive self-talk and all these things. And I would not say a single one of those things is bad. None of those is bad at all. But it feels like it's very, very easy. Well, no, I wouldn't say easy. But I, I would say it feels sometimes common that we can apply this discipline to all these areas of our lives except spiritual life. And here's the thing, guys. Like, our everlasting life, it's starting now, and it is going to go on forever, which is awesome. But what we have right here, it's not going to happen. It's not going to last forever, you know? The lives that we're living right now, the influence in our workplaces, within our families, within our spouses, within our, our, our siblings, our parents, the people around us, within the world around us, that influence has a ticking time limit. It's not going to last forever. And I would hate nothing more than to look back on a life wasted serving the idols of the world, trying to make sure I was successful, trying to make sure I was comfortable, and looking at all these opportunities that I had to make the world know that Jesus is the best thing that has happened to me and is the best thing that could happen to anyone else. And I just dropped the ball, right? I love John Piper's sermon. It's like super famous sermon about uh, not wasting your life talks about all these people and like older Christian communities who got into all these kind of worthless hobbies. It's like collecting seashells. This, this imagery always sticks with me of this, 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 uh, this dude who dies and, and God, you know, is embracing him in heaven and is asking like, what, what, did you, what did you do for me? Like, what do you have for me from your work there on earth? And the dude's just like, look at all my seashells. <laughs> like, I don't think we want that. I don't think a single one of us here wants that. And so I would encourage us really, really strongly to like really conform to whatever discipline it takes. Honestly, for me, I just got to read my Bible more. I got to read my Bible more. I got to pray. I have to consistently remind myself of the promises that I have been given by God, but also the expectations for what true life is and how I'm supposed to implement that into my life because I forget. The church, like just this right here, this is so important because it's preaching the gospel and I can tell you, I forget. But here's the thing, I can also remind myself. I can read his word, it's in English, it's not, it's not in Latin anymore, it's been a few hundred years since that happened. I can read his word, I can remind myself how good he is and what he expects from me. Our, uh, our confession verse, as we move into our conclusion, our confession verse was, uh, was like I said, a pretty rough word. It was pretty, it was pretty brutal from uh, speaking from Jesus, his, uh, his word to, to the church in Laodicea. And so, but what I want to close with is actually the verse that follows. 
So you've got all these verses talking about, you know, repenting and, and, and buying true gold that you could be rich in, in, in spiritual wealth and not these physical things. And all these people who say, I have everything that I need, but are spiritually bankrupt. And, and Jesus is like kind of brutal to them. And this verse right here that we want to close with is, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Some of us may be living like the people of this church, maybe leaving Jesus outside the door, living content with themselves, forgetting about the life that Jesus is offering us day by day. But his words are just as true today as they were then, that Jesus is standing outside our door knocking, waiting to be let in, and not let in so that he can hold our past sins against us, not to be let in so that he can grill us and scold us and shame us, but let in so that he can dine with us, so that he can experience that fellowship that he longs for with us, and that he can teach us the ways that we can bring him to all these areas in our lives. And so I think it's appropriate that we would end this verse with communion because what better way to discuss dining with Jesus than to speak about communion? It's very appropriate because just as Jesus has commanded us that we should take communion in remembrance of him and we can remember that just as the bread has been broken, his body was broken for us. And just as his blood was poured out, this wine has been poured out for us. And so we can experience this. We can, we can have this communion with him. We can dine with him even now and just experience and enjoy that. So now what I'd like to do, we're gonna worship in three ways. We're going, to, uh, we're going to worship with communion. So if you have given your life to Jesus, if you've trusted in him as your savior to take away all of your sins, please, I would welcome you to come up and take communion. If you haven't and you're thinking like, maybe I should, like you can find me after service. That's fine. You can talk to me. You can talk to Andy. You can talk to Nick. You can talk to the person that brought you here. Just talk to somebody and, uh, and we would love to, to have that conversation with you. Uh, if we're also going to worship through song, we're going to, uh, we have, uh, Mike's going to prepare a few more songs that he's going to be doing with us. And then lastly, we're going to worship in giving. So we have a, a tablet in the back. We don't teach tithes. We don't teach the 10% stuff. We just teach that people should give generously. People should give cheerfully. So if you have a generous or cheerful gift for us, please share that with the church. Um, so yeah, let's stand. Let's come together. Let's worship our God who has loved us, who has died for us, and who has given us everlasting life.